Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. This is the magnum opus of the Apostle Paul. It includes his full understanding of who God is and who we are to be as a result of being called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. And today we're going to look at verses 6, 1 through verse 14. But before that, let me give a word of introduction. It's been over 10 years ago when the elders and I went to a conference sponsored by Ligonier Ministries in Orlando, Florida. The presider was the founder of Ligonier. He has since gone to be with the Lord in the last few years, R.C. Sproul. Dr. Sproul gave the concluding message. There were many outstanding teachers who spoke that week. And his subject was heaven. He said, I want to ask all of you to take a moment and ask yourself this question. What is it that you look forward to most by going to heaven? He paused. We thought. He answered his own question. He said, the thing which I look forward to more than anything else is that I will never be able to sin again. That's the thought which came into my own mind as I pondered that question. Do you ever wish you would never sin again? Or at least do you wish that you were not dominated, if not controlled by sin in your life? The very presence of God by His Spirit in our lives causes us to be bothered by our sin among the tasks of the Holy Spirit of God is to convict us of our sin, to put the finger on attitudes or actions or words that are out of keeping with one who is filled or at least indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. Today we're going to look at how we, because of who Christ is and who we are in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, can overcome sin in our lives. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 6 to get us on our way. Paul raises the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? And the word translated continue carries with it the idea of clinging to sin. Are we in order to really give God's grace a workout and to really prove it, are we to continue in sin? Are we to cling to sin? Is it something that we should really long for? There are two equal and opposite responses to who we are in Christ, knowing that we have been saved by grace. I'm talking about the extremes now. There is one extreme which just incessantly worries about possibly committing a sin. And there is some benefit 
to being concerned for sure. But we're not to be obsessed with that. Rather, we are to be focusing on the person of Jesus Christ. He's our Lord, which raises a big question. I need to speak about this for a moment. We know that the Bible says in chapter five of Romans, verse one, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This whole issue of justification is one which is largely ignored. And even if it's considered, it's probably not often understood. My pastor 50 years ago gave me this piece of information that I've carried forward. It's a simple way to understand what it means to be justified. The word justified or its associated word justification comes from the legal system of Rome. Paul borrowed that to make the point that he's making in the book of Romans that we are right with God. And the word justified, as my pastor used to say, could be understood this way. It's just as if I had never sinned. Think about it. That's what justification means. Have we sinned? Absolutely. Do we sin after we come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior? Yes, we do. But what is the right viewpoint of our being justified? We are to embrace the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Later in the book of Romans, Paul speaks those words. There is now no condemnation, which suggests there was a time in our existence when we were under a death sentence because of our sin. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. But good news for us, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we are people who are made right by God. It's the work of Jesus Christ. It's the work of God the Father. God conspired to make a way whereby we could be related properly to God. He was the one who put together what we call the plan of salvation. He is the one who says in the book of Isaiah 43, 25, it's for my sake that I have saved you. What does he have at stake? What does God need or want from us? He needs nothing, but what does he want as far as a relationship with us is concerned? He wants to, for us to be able to be in right relationship with him so he can have fellowship with us. Remember that the Bible says also in the book of Isaiah that our sin separates us from God. So God made a way. When there was no other way, we sang that song a little earlier. And the way was Jesus himself so that we can come to the Father through Christ and have this justified position. In the plan of salvation, which God hatched, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity, was this provision that God the Father would make Jesus the Son who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus is our righteousness, but we are in Christ. I'm sure you've noticed as you've read your Bible how often this way of describing individuals who know Jesus is used by Paul. In Christ, in Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ, in Him, over and over again. A 
man by the name of James Stewart, who was quite a pastor, preacher, and scholar in Scotland in his day in the 20th century, wrote an entire book and entitled it, A Man in Christ. Talking about the Apostle Paul, his own sense of self-awareness was it was in Christ, in Christ alone, that he was able to be saved from his sin and to relate to the Father. And then going back to what I mentioned earlier where God says, it's for my sake that I have saved you. He wants a relationship with us, but it goes further than that. He wants to use us and he has to make us right with him before we can be used by him. Isn't this a wonderful plan of salvation that God has for us? This is what he wants for each person in this room today. Did we have that kind of relationship with him? Part of the problem of sin in our lives is that we misunderstand what that relationship means. God is not someone we can come and fist bump, bump chests with, say, hey, buddy, what's going on? He is a holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is Abba Father, which means He is approachable. In fact, He is wanting intimacy with us, but we must always keep in mind who He is. And the same is true for Jesus. When Paul was approached by a jailer in Philippi and asked the question, what must I do to be saved? The answer was very terse, but it was jam-packed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Many people just want fire insurance. So they want to have a savior so they don't go to hell when they die. Well, sometimes the Lord responds to such a motive, but not very often. What I can say for sure is he never responds to the overture of a human being for acceptance by him unless that person is willing and ready to make Jesus Christ his or her Lord. We come to Christ for salvation, but more importantly, we come to him so that he may be our Lord. He's our master. So one response to this matter of justification is a response of great gratitude. And that gratitude can sometimes morph into fear about being cut off from the Lord. But let's go back to Romans 8.1 for a moment. Cut off by our sin, by the way. Let's go back to Romans 8.1 one more time. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? It's because Christ was condemned for us. That's why. And the way in which Paul writes those words, there is therefore no condemnation. He uses in the strongest possible way available to a person who understood the language in which the New Testament was written. He puts two negatives together. These simple particles, four letters, but two words. This is literally what it says, translated word for word from the Greek New Testament. There is therefore now, now not no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Poor grammar, right? 
but perfectly good grammar in the Greek language and also in the grammar of God. It's more important. Some people say, okay, we're free. We're just going to live it up. There are some people, there were people in the New Testament who did that. But the Lordship of Christ interferes with that because the whole idea of setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts means that we refer everything to Him. And He's not a killjoy, by the way. God's got a bad rap like that. God just wants us to be glum and just morose and just be so stiff in our lives. We read from Psalm 16 and it closes with two lines that are so true. Thank you, Lord. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Nothing can hold a candle in the world to the pleasure and joy of knowing Christ. And let me go one step further. To being used by Jesus Christ. Have you been used by Christ and were aware of it? Have you stepped out in faith and trusted Christ to do what He's called you to do? And you have known the pleasure of God? There's nothing like it in the world. And it's available to all of us. In fact, it's more than available. It is the reason in large part that God has called us out of darkness into His kingdom to be His children. What then shall we say? Are we to continue, cling to, live incessantly in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. Some of your translations translate those two words in the original language, God forbid. It was a strong way of saying absolutely not under any circumstance would we do that. Now let's look at our union with Christ. There is a parallel passage in the Gospel of John, John 15, to this teaching. You know that in that passage, Jesus identifies himself as the true vine, saying his father is the vine dresser. I won't go over all that he says, but one of the things that he says that's so relevant to what we're looking at today, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. That's an easy picture to get in our minds, isn't it? Jesus is the vine and he's got a lot of branches attached to him. We who know Jesus Christ are branches. As we abide in him, we are grafted in him in a sense. And that's what he's talking about here. Union with Christ means sharing his death is what we're going to look at first. Later, his resurrection life and finally, and very encouragingly, we share his victory over sin. So we abide in him. His life flows through us. His life enables us to overcome sin. Remember, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So let's consider this first statement that our union with Christ means sharing in his death. Verse two, the middle of it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? What does that mean? How do we die to sin? Remember what Jesus says in his call to follow him. 
He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What is the cross an instrument of? It's an instrument of death, isn't it? Saying no to myself in order that I might say yes to God. That's what the call of Christ is on our lives. That's the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives where we give up the right to call the shots in our life in favor of letting the Lord Jesus Christ himself define what our lives are to be about and how we're to live them. He, how shall he who died to sin still live in it? It makes perfectly good sense. If we're dead to something, we can't really live in that in the sense of being fulfilled in terms of purpose in that. Look at verse three. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. In our church, we baptize people as believers in Christ by immersion. Sometimes people say, y'all dunk people, don't you? Well, we put them under the water, but I don't know that we dunk them. That reminds me of donuts or something with coffee, you know. We don't do that. There is no better picture, and this is why I know the Holy Spirit picked the word that he chooses in the New Testament to describe baptism or to baptize. What it literally means is to be submerged completely or immersed. For instance, it was used outside the New Testament as some chronicler told about a ship at sea in a storm and it suffered great loss to the degree that it was baptized in the sea. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus baptized in his death? We have been immersed, as it were, in his death by our union with him. And we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Now, so far, I don't know how many people I've had the privilege and joy of baptizing over the course of over 40 years of being a pastor. A lot of people. But I don't believe I've ever left anyone under the water when I lowered them under the water. I came close one time. The person whom I baptized is Robbie. And Robbie weighed 300 pounds. And he was a football player at UTEP. He was a great football player. Were it not for a stroke he suffered the next to the last game of his senior year, he would have been drafted in the top three rounds probably. He did get on and play some pro football. He recovered from the stroke. Thank God he had the same kind of stroke that Teddy Bruschi, some of you remember that, if you're familiar with the New England Patriots, who came back and played some more. So Robbie did likewise. But as we were talking about his baptism, he was a gentle guy, really. And he said, Pastor... Don't you think you might need some help <laughs> baptizing me? And of course, I kind of did my best flex, which wasn't much, you know. <laughs> I think expanded my chest is 38 inches, so it was pretty bad. But I said, no, Robbie, I've baptized a man who outweighed you before. What I failed to remember, that was 20 years earlier. <laughs> so we got right up here in this baptistry and you know, I was, you know, getting ready for it. I asked him some questions and we got ready for it. And I took him down 
And we got out, he got out of the water about that far, and then I collapsed on top of him. <laughs> oh my goodness, total embarrassment. But at least he did go under the water and he came out of the water. It was one of the more memorable moments of my pastoral life. Yeah. But people who are baptized as believers depict what's already happened in their lives. When they trusted Jesus Christ for their salvation and they called him Lord and Savior and cried out to him and said, Lord, save me. He did just that. He saved them. I happen to believe, and I have good grounds for believing, that Paul is not simply talking about believer's baptism here. In fact, I think what he had in mind primarily is what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to explain that. Some of you immediately said, wait a minute. You're not right about that. Because baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that's designed to occur after you receive Jesus so that you can feel, experience the filling of the Holy Spirit in your life. Well, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is just one book further back in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And you will remember that the Corinthian church, of all the churches we have correspondence about from Paul to that church or those churches, it's the church which he declares was a church that had every spiritual gift. Every spiritual gift. It was a very gifted church. But at the same time, it was the least mature church. So there is not a correlation between gifts and maturity. What is the evidence of spiritual maturity in our lives as individuals and as a body of believers? It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Character is the issue. And in the passage where we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit, and I'll get to that in a moment, in that passage, there's nothing said about gifts. It has to do with relationships. There are four marks of a Spirit-filled church. Those marks are that we sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. We've done that today. Spirit-filled people worship the Lord, and it's that which comes from the heart. It's not just through the vocal cords. It's from the heart. Also, we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's communication. We don't avoid our brothers and sisters in Christ. We speak to them. We encourage them with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Also, and this is the one that I say separates the mature from the immature, that we give thanks always for everything. Paul employs three different ways of saying we're thanking God for everything. That's tough, isn't it? But a spirit-filled man or woman does that. And lastly, we submit to one another. This is also difficult. It's impossible, frankly. Those last, all of this is impossible, apart from being filled with the Holy Spirit. The word filled itself, when you do a careful study of it, it means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Totally under the control of the Holy Spirit. 
Let's look at verse 3, having said that, of 1 Corinthians 12. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Who empowers you or me? Who did that for me decades ago? I had no clue who it was. I was just receiving Christ. But who gave me the power to say Jesus is Lord it was the Holy Spirit of God. Nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit is what this says. Now, glance over to verse 13. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Everybody who made up the body of Christ in Corinth Immature, in between, and mature. Everybody was baptized in the Holy Spirit. You know when they were baptized? When they were born again. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us. Unless you're born of the Spirit and water, Jesus says, I believe that spiritually by the Holy Spirit and physically, you've got to have a second birth. Unless you've been born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You're regenerated and you have to be born of the Spirit, Jesus says in John chapter 3. But what we see in John, Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible says there is one body, verse 4, and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is when the Holy Spirit saves us, gives us life. And what does He do? He immerses us in the body of Christ. We immediately become part of the church of Jesus Christ by that spirit baptism. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. All these believers, and remember a lot of them, they were, they were pretty immature. They were babies really, is what Paul says. In chapter three, he says, look, you guys should be mature, but you still are acting like babies. And if you look a little later, in this 12th chapter, it's a great teaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Verse 29 says, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? Can it be more plain than that? Are the gifts of the Spirit still active today from God's point of view? And my answer to that is not my answer really, it's the Word of God. Yes, the gifts of the Spirit are available and people have them. But there's not one of the gifts of the Spirit which is a defining gift to determine if a person has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, having said that, I probably ruffled some feathers already, but I, I wanna get back to the Word of God. Look, we measure everything by Scripture not by experience, correct? We evaluate our experience by the Word of God. We are called on to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, y'all keep on being filled by the Holy Spirit. Always 
It's in keeping with one who knows Jesus to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be controlled by. Do experiences accompany that? Sometimes they do. But sometimes you don't feel anything. But that doesn't in any way mean that you are not filled with the Spirit if you are walking in the Spirit. And that comes back to being under the rulership of the Holy Spirit and Jesus as your Lord. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 6. Pick up where we left off. Union with Christ means sharing in His death. We died to ourselves in order we might live to God. Now, here's the second thing. Union with Christ means sharing in His resurrected life. Look at the middle of verse 4. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. I remember so well the night that I was baptized. I was just a boy. Now, remember that Pastor Jerry Autry, who performed the baptism, as I came up out of the water, he said, raised to walk in newness of life. I had no clue what that meant, but that didn't matter. It was true, wasn't it? I had been raised in Christ when I trusted Christ, and my baptism was a picture of that so that I could be a person. I was saved, so I could be a person who shared in the resurrected life of Jesus. And this is key, by the way. you got to die. That's pretty important. Die to yourself. But you are raised to newness of life. And it's the life of Christ. It's a resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes it possible for us to be people who no, do not sin. Before I forget it, I want to make another observation. I'm going to make it in the form of a question and then answer the question. Is it possible that we can live as followers of Christ without ever sinning again? Well, I guess it would be possible, but let me tell you what the Scripture says. This is our place we go for answers, right? To the Bible. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1a, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We do sin and that's not a license to sin. It's just a statement of fact because what follows that is a verse that I have worn out in my life. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank God for 1 John 1, 9. Tim LaHaye, who's best known for his works, the Left Behind series, wrote some things that were a lot better than that from my viewpoint, no knock on it. But he said that 1 John 1, 9 is the Christian's bar of soap. When we sin, Jesus talks about this in, 1, in John 13, when he washes the feet of the apostles. Remember that? You recall that? And in that passage, Peter says, hey, don't wash my feet. And then he says, if I don't wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me. And then Peter, impetuous Peter, he says, oh, then wash my head and everything about me. He says, you don't get it, Peter. All I have to do is wash your feet. What was he symbolizing in doing that for his apostles? That when we walk through this world as followers of Christ, we 
come in contact with worldliness at times and sometimes we become contaminated by it. Not in the sense that we're not to interact with the world. By, by all means, the Bible says, how in 1 Corinthians 5, how will the lost people come to know Christ if we who know Christ do not make friends with them? Not with their ways, but with them. So we need to be people who know when we sin, God's bar of soap is 1 John 1, 9. And it goes further than that. If you go into 1 John chapter 2, the Bible says, I write these things, little children, that if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who forgives you of all your sins. He has become the propitiation, meaning the full sacrifice for sin. You can't add anything to it. You can't take anything away from what Christ has done for us. Look at verse 5. For if we have become united, and this phrase, become united, means that there was a moment in our personal histories when we were united with Christ. We died. We united in His death. We were united with Him in the likeness of His death. Certainly we shall also be united to Him in the likeness of His resurrection knowing this, that our old self, the word self is really literally man in the original language. The old person was crucified with Christ that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Any here, anyone here feel enslaved to some sin? And as you search through your history of relating to Christ, you say, I know I gave my life to Christ. I remember it. I meant it. I wanted Him to be my Lord, not just my Savior. But along the way, you haven't been understanding this teaching. It's, it's a basic teaching of how we can overcome sin and not be habitual sinners. Yes, we do sin, but we do what the Bible says we have to do when we sin. In Proverbs 28, 13 echoes 1 John 1, 9 says, If anyone conceals his sin, he cannot prosper. But he who confesses and repents or renounces the sin will find mercy. We live in this relationship. And you might say, that sounds really difficult. It is not difficult in the sense that it's impossible. It's difficult because we don't understand the importance of confessing our sin and repenting. And you don't have to wait to go to confession somewhere. You just confess it to the Lord. And He is always there for us. He lives to make intercession for us, is what the Bible says. This is His MO at the moment, as He sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. It's so beautiful to think about who Jesus is and what He has done for us, so that we don't have to be slaves to sin anymore. How do you get there from where you are? Well, you come clean with God. And then you commit to continue to ask Him to fill you, to control you. It's what Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, taught for years and still does through the literature that he produced. He said, it's like spiritual breathing. Physically, we, we involuntarily, what do we breathe out? Thank you. I think that was Jake with that one. Say it again. Oh, Bill. 
Okay, Bill, you were in the same area that Jake. Jake was asleep. Go ahead. Carbon dioxide. Thank you. Yeah. And then what do we do? We bring oxygen back in. What is the equivalent of carbon dioxide? It's sin, isn't it? We confess it. We breathe it out. And then what do we do? We ask the Holy Spirit to take control of our lives yet another time. That's what we do. We trust the Holy Spirit to do that. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for doing that. So we are enslaved to sin. Verse 7 says, For he who has died is freed from sin. Let me stop here just a moment. Justification. That's really important, isn't it? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What Dr. Sproul spoke of about looking forward to going in heaven, to heaven so that he wouldn't sin anymore, couldn't. That's glorification. We're free from the penalty of sin through justification. We're free from the presence of sin when we die and go to heaven because we're no longer capable of sinning. But what about this interim period? This is the hard part, isn't it, for us? It's difficult. This is the period that Scripture calls sanctification. Our sanctification is that which is effected, initially affected, I should say, initially by the Holy Spirit. Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, the first couple of verses, Peter writes about how the Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies us. How does He sanctify us? You know what sanctification really means? To be set apart for God's use. God, remember, created us not just to save us from our sins, but to save us so He could use us. And remember, being used by God is the purpose for which you were created. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. It makes perfectly good sense. If I'm in the will of God, I'm going to be doing good works, and they take all kinds of form. They don't take religious forms like things that I do. They take forms that you do in your home as you minister to your spouse if you're married as you minister to your parents if you're a child in your home. When you do what you're supposed to do at work, to work as unto the Lord, when you represent the Lord wherever you are, those are the good works which God called us to do and where Jesus says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. This is lovely, isn't it? And the Lord has freed us from sin in the sense that in this time which we have, between the time we were made right with God by Christ and the Holy Spirit, and we're gone out of here. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us, and He uses His Word to do it. The Bible says, Jesus Himself says to the Father, Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. We have the mind of Christ represented in this book. This is the greatest treasure anyone has apart from knowing Christ Himself and having eternal life. This is it. And it's at our disposal. And the Holy Spirit is the one who interprets it to us, understanding that He is the one who authored the Scripture. We saw that two weeks ago when we were studying the last three verses of 2 Peter chapter 1. So let's look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, in the word, if really would 
equally well be translated and properly translated with the word since. Now, since we have died with Christ, we're in union with him in his death, we believe that we shall also live with him in this life and the life to come, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. And by our relationship to him, where are we? Let's, let's say it together. We are in Christ. And what does that mean? What's true of Christ now is true of us now. So death no longer has mastery over us. Praise God for that. Verse 10 says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So by association with Jesus, I know I'm beating this thing up a little bit. By associating with Jesus, we are to live unto God, aren't we? And it's not something beyond our reach. Verse 11 says, even so keep on considering yourselves dead to sin. This is what you and I must do. Listen carefully. The very suggestion of sin in the form of temptation to me, I should remind myself that I am dead to sin. I don't have to sin anymore. You might say, well, that's silly. Why would you even say that? Well, because I think it's right to do it and it has an impact upon the way I think and hopefully upon the way I respond to temptation. But alive to God in Christ Jesus, awesome. Now here's the third thing. This is where it gets practical. And by the way, some of you will know this, very few probably, because you haven't studied the book of Romans in the way that a pastor teacher would study this is the first time in the entire letter to the Romans that Paul gives an exhortation. You know what an exhortation is? I want you to do something. I want you to do this. First time. He spent the first five and a half chapters of Romans dealing with doctrine. Doctrine is the teaching about God, about man, about Jesus, and to some extent, Perhaps the Holy Spirit. He really hasn't talked much about the Holy Spirit in the first five and a half chapters. But what we want to know is that this part is the part that the union with Christ not only enables us to share in his death. We can die to ourselves because he did. Not only does it have to do with walking in newness of life. We can walk in life because we're associated with Christ. We are like a branch in a vine. We've been connected to him. We've been united with him. But also it has to do with sharing in his victory over sin. Let's read verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Let me interpret a little here. Here's what it literally means. Therefore, stop letting sin reign in your mortal body that you should keep on obeying its lusts. These were Christians. These are people who really knew the Lord. And they were letting sin rule in their lives. That's possible for us. Some of you are currently letting sin rule in your life. By choice or by default, you're letting that happen. But here we have the answer. Stop it. And the Lord never gives us a command that he does not provide the power to fulfill the command. It's the Spirit of God who gives us the power. 
So we called on the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, please help me not to do this. And verse 13, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. In other words, he uses the same grammatical vehicle. Stop presenting the members. The members would be the parts of your body to sin. And the word instruments really is the word weapons, weapons of unrighteousness. Do you know what we do when we live a way that we were not designed to live as people justified, people who have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin and then empowers us to live the life that He would have us to live? What we're doing is we're offering the parts of our body through which we sin. I sin through my eyes. I sin through my ears, my mouth, my feet, my hands. You name it. We have a body which we live through. All of us. This is why we'll be raised from the dead and we'll have a body. Fortunately for those of us who know Jesus, we're going to have what is called a glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that in detail. But also, and this comes as a surprise to some of you, perhaps it did to me years ago when it finally dawned on me when I was doing a careful study of chapter 5 of John. People who don't know Christ are coming out of the grave too. They're not going to have a glorified body. They're going to have the body they lived in when they were on earth. But it won't be glorified. It will be that which they will be judged in forever. Eternal destruction is what it's called by Paul in 2 Thessalonians. Those two words don't even go together, do they? But that's what it'll be like. Why? Because we sin through our bodies, do we not? Or we serve the Lord through our bodies. These bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And He motivates us and uses us. He uses us through our bodies. So the members quit presenting the members, the parts of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Are we alive from the dead? If we know Christ, we are. We're different people, new creatures in Christ. And your members as weapons of righteousness to God. It's high time in the church of Christ in America, I can't speak for other places, in the United States, to rearm itself for the battle in which we find ourselves. We are in an incredible struggle in this country. The answer is not to be found in anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. I say that because the Bible says in Romans that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation. This nation needs a revival. And it will only begin when I and you understand the importance of our living the life as God created us in the second creation to live. That's not to say that there are not other systems that God would want you to be involved in to help change things. But let's get the primary thing in its proper place. We are to be men and women who ask Holy Spirit to fill us and we represent Jesus, and we look for opportunity. Look, I happen to know, I don't pretend to know everything about anything, but what I do observe in this time of COVID and all the tumult and difficulty in our country at this time, how there's such division, 
I know that it has caused a lot of people to come out of the woodwork who want to know Jesus. And they're just waiting for someone like you or me who know Jesus to lead them to Christ. I see it every week. And there are people who come here to this place to worship the Lord. And they don't even know why they've come here. Why did they pick here? I've had people tell me that they just went on the internet and found a church that they thought might help them and it happened to be our church. We're not the only church in town for sure, but we're part of the church of Jesus Christ. And we need to understand we have a great probability. The window might be closing, but what I do know, if I understand what is a precursor to the end of time, is there going to be a real revival? Spiritual. And correspondingly, a revival of wickedness, wickedness, wickedness like we've never seen before. At the same time, there are going to be a lot of people come to faith and the Lord wants to use us to help them come to know Christ. Just wake up and look around you. When people come into this room, many of us come here every week. Look, don't just talk to the people you know. Get here early enough and don't rush out when it's over. Look for people whom you don't know and introduce yourself to them. You never know. God may have brought that person here for you to share Christ with, to love that person. This is what God wants for us, to present ourselves to Him as those alive from the dead. Paul says later in Romans, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, and stop being conformed to this world. Don't let it squeeze you into its own mold, but be transformed continually. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does our mind get renewed? By exposing it to the truth of God's Word. We have the mind of Christ. Turn quickly to Ephesians 4. I'd like to give you some application. How can we begin again in our walk with the Lord and learn how to no longer present the members of my body? Let me take the tongue as an example. In verse 28 of Ephesians 4, let him, excuse me, 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their need. Okay. One form of unwholesome talk, there are many of them which come out of my mouth, but one that I've battled with over time is sarcasm. And we think we're cute when we can put people down, cut them. We do. Some of us are experts. I've been an expert in it, unfortunately, over time. But rather than cut people down or tell lies or speak stuff that nobody needs to hear, we speak to the person in a way that will build her up, build him up. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. How can we encourage people? People are dying to be encouraged today. We don't have to say Romans 15, 4 says this, but there are truths in the Bible that you can share with people that will encourage them. It's the Word of God. And so we can be men and women of the Word. And 
Let's be done. Put off. You know, this whole passage in Ephesians 4 is about putting off the old man, putting on the new man. We've already put the new man on in Christ. So what is left? We just have to be alert and to the word of God and know what we can do. Here's another one. Be angry and yet do not sin. Anybody here battle anger? Who doesn't? Be a better question. Battling, being angry improperly, and that's about 98% of mine at least, maybe 99, grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Look at verse 30. And do not grieve, stop grieving, is what it literally says in the Greek. The Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Here's, how, here's what you replace anger with. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You know, every time I get upset with somebody, I try to go to Ephesians 4.32 and compare the offense that I think someone has leveled against me with the hideous offenses that I've leveled against God. And all of a sudden, it tempts that down and I can be kind to that person. And I can be an agent of love, God's love to that person. So, one assignment for you. Listen carefully. It's late and you've been a very attentive group. Here's the assignment. On a piece of paper, just write down the various parts of your body that you know you have yielded to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. Just write them down. And then you might even, beside that, put what you have done with those parts of your body that have been sinful. Then on the other side, draw a line down the middle. On the other side, write some alternatives to your tongue being used as a weapon of unrighteousness to its becoming a weapon of righteousness. Your temper, unrighteousness, how can you be kind to people? You see the, what you can do? And I want to encourage you to do this. If you're serious about this, it's a simple thing. Do that and go there every morning and go over that and say, Lord, I yield my tongue to you today. I yield my eyes to you today. I yield my feet to you today. Whatever. And then at the end of the day, come home. Don't be discouraged if you fail. But come home before you go to bed. Go over that again. Say, well, Lord, I failed here today. I confess that to you. I want to repent of it, Lord. Make me more conscious. Fill me with your spirit. Help me with my tongue. Help me with my temper. Help me with all the various parts of me who are agents at times for sin. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time we've had of fellowship. And thank you for our being able to be taught in the Word of God, by the truth of God's Word. And Father, we pray that this would not be an exercise in learning without application. Help us to be men and women who are eager to show that we are your servants and you are Lord Jesus by our obedience to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.